Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Charles. Yes, you've asked me for my picturesque qualities, presumably. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, yeah, good evening. It's actually my second Negroni talk. I'm a veteran of these. I did one years ago before lockdown. I know you guys soldiered on through that, doing them online and stuff. So um, it's really nice to be back. And um, a bit closer. Yeah, OK. Thanks, Rob. Um, OK, so um, tonight's topic, architecture and representation... Um, it, this, my role in it, and I think some of the initial conversations on this came out, um, as things invariably do, after a kind of argument on social media, um, in relation to a sort of popular meme, I guess, which is, t- um, uh, might be called hashtag render versus reality, um, and a sort of popular idea that architectural representations in the form of CGI's um, are somehow kind of often let down by the reality of the building. Um, there's a disconnect between the kind of amazing, glowing, glazing of a scheme and the reality of um, what's built, or the lack, uh, a kind of representation of some incredibly verdant pasture, beautiful alpine hillside, um, and the reality of the Marble Arch Mound. So we're kind of familiar with that sense, but I was frustrated by this um, idea as well, that somehow it suggested that architectural drawings have ever been honest. There's a suggestion in the kind of growth of the CGI and the hyper-realistic representation that architecture is somehow involved in a kind of deceit, pulling the wool over our eyes by trying to make something look more exciting, more glamorous, um, more beautiful than it actually is. But that somehow this is a new thing, and it struck me that, that actually that's not the case. Architectural drawing and architectural representation has always been about something other than the building. Um, architectural drawings are not buildings. They're different things, and they serve different roles. Um, and so that role, those roles might be lots of different things. They might be about conveying technical information to a builder. They might be about trying to convince a client. They might be about trying to raise funding. They might be about um, propagating and putting forward a kind of theory of architecture. They might be about positioning the architect and a piece of architecture within a kind of wider art historical rhetorical framework. So one thinks perhaps of like the four books of architecture by Palladio, a series of drawings which are about a propaganda for a certain kind of style of architecture. They're about kind of propagating how to be an architect in a kind of global sense. You might also think of things like Joseph Gandhi's paintings of John Soane's buildings, which are not representations of a building in any sense. They're sometimes representations of a sort of fantasy 
of that building, either under construction or as a ruin. Um, one might think of the kind of rhetorical drawings of people like Archagram and Cedric Price, where the role of the drawing is often really not describing a building that's ever going to be built. They're about suggesting an idea. They're about capturing a kind of moment, and you could call them a kind of form of propaganda. And one might think, too, of like contemporary architectural practice, such as the Portuguese practice Fala, who use architectural drawing uh, in a remarkable way to kind of almost cultivate a career before they've actually built very much stuff. There's a kind of sophistication and there's a seduction in the way that they use architectural representation. So this topic interests me hugely, partly because I love architectural drawings and I'm very interested in architecture as a cultural product. I'm interested in what architecture says culturally in the world as much as it is a kind of fact and as much as it's a kind of um, technical um, or social uh, or pragmatic necessity, it exists as a kind of cultural and rhetorical thing. Um, so, what I wanted to do was try to sort of open this conversation out from an idea that um, architectural representation is truthful, to talk about the different kinds of truths that it has. In a sense, I think the CGI is, the problem with the CGI is not that it's um, how untruthful it is, the problem is, is how accurate it is. It's so accurate that it allows us to judge its inaccuracy. <laughs> if you take an elevation, it's so different from how we experience a building that it's very hard to say that the building has failed in terms of delivering on the expectation of the elevation. But CGI claims some kind of naturalism. It claims to be almost synonymous and exactly the same as uh, architecture itself. That's probably where the problem stems. So I want to talk about these different kinds of representation. Um, and of course, there are other uh, permutations and other associations with the word representation. We might also not just be talking about drawings and pictures of things. We might be talking about the what is being represented, what cultural values are being represented, who is being represented, how are things being represented, and what is the audience that they're intended for. So there's quite a lot of stuff. Um, but fortunately, we have some extremely erudite and intelligent people to help us unpack that. Um, and um, uh, so I'm going to try and throw this out to um, some of our speakers. Um, I'm not going to introduce them in advance. I'm going to kind of um, pick them out uh, as they go um, and also talk a little bit about where they might be coming from in relation to the kind of issue of representation. Um, I'm going to start with... This is like a tremendously powerful and evil um, moment for me and I think I'm going to pick on David Knight um, <laughs> yeah, it's too much to resist David so I want to maybe start with a kind of question and perhaps just if I may um, situate you if I may be so bold David to situate you perhaps in relation to this conversation because um, obviously I know your work, we've talked together, I know your interest in architectural representation, but one of the things that you do do, apart from a massive interest in architectural drawings, is produce drawings yourself, which are not necessarily describing buildings that you're working on or buildings that you're building, um, or bits of buildings or anything, but you draw buildings because you're kind of interested in them and those drawings have a sort of life of their own, they're kind of cultural products beyond the the products of your practice. So perhaps we could start with the idea of like, why would you do architectural drawings if they're not describing a building that you're going to build? What would be the point of that? I think that's a really good point. I never. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're questioning my whole uh, 
uh, my whole life there, Charles. Um, yeah, so I've, I should introduce myself a bit, probably. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm David Knight. I run a, or I co-run, a small architecture practice, about five minutes that way, um, that called DKCM, that works mainly on public projects. So that includes buildings. We're about to finish a business school for the uh, city of Westminster. But it also includes kind of strategic work and projects that are kind of on the edge of architecture and are equally or perhaps more concerned with kind of urban strategy, producing planning guidance, all sorts of stuff uh, like that, which is I've got some background in architecture and some background in kind of planning and kind of urban strategy too. Um, so the, I think the drawings that Charles is mainly referring to are kind of mostly piled up on a kind of private Instagram account that exists and is like embarrassingly at the moment slightly more popular than my company's Instagram account, which is a subject of like regular like crisis meetings, but we'll, well, I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over that. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that um, I've always, in an informal way, uh, felt that um, an architect and a designer should kind of draw for pleasure, basically. Like, representing architecture is obviously part of the business of what we do. Um, it's also like a deep joy and therapy often to just draw, just as it is to make or to, you know, have a productive meeting or to kind of visit a site and be inspired by it. Like the act of drawing should be joyful. Uh, it obviously isn't always the kind of, the, you know, the window package that you've got to get through by the end of the day. It's not always a, a joyful thing, but a kind of in kind of my own life, in the practice and through teaching, always tried to kind of inculcate the idea that one might draw architecture or draw the city or draw landscape or all of these things uh, simply because it's, it's fun and it's kind of productive in a non-financial means but, in, but in, a, in a sense that it might move a conversation on. Um, what that suggests is sometimes that's drawing things about our projects as an office in a way that's kind of slightly, slightly off to one side from the main production of drawings for clients and so on. Sometimes it's drawing things that I think are relevant to a project. Like, okay, we're doing a thing like this, a lighthouse made out of, made out of scaffolding. What things in the world and of architectural culture might be relevant to that? Let's draw them. And um, sometimes it's simply just like finding stuff that you think is, or you have a, have a hunch might be cool or interesting or provocative or might you know, generally move the conversation on. Um, so I've always been quite careful to make them that like they sometimes they, they are directly produced in practice, but more often they're they're kind of bus journeys, lunch hours, evenings once the kids in bed. They're often in those sorts of spaces, which is an interesting one in terms of making sure that uh, you know architecture happens within working hours because a lot of those don't. They're actually forms of like therapy <laughs> or kind of uh, ways of like processing the things that are rattling around your head as an architect or as a designer in other ways. Um, obviously, the, I mean, the ideal, of course, is that in unexpected ways, they become useful for projects in unexpected ways, sometimes in direct ways, sometimes in unexpected ones. But I guess, I guess the, re the really key thing is that it's, um, it should be a joyful thing, and it should just be a, a kind of a, pra a, a way of growing one's practice or praxis in a way that's just fun. So uh, certainly in our work doing public projects, 95% of the time is in emails, is in phone conversations, is in a kind of a world where you're not representing architecture in, that, in the context of 
architectural culture, but you're engaged in a whole bunch of other means of communication and dialogue. Um, so the act of like drawing an elevation that you think is beautiful and you'd like to understand why you think it's beautiful, that is just an incredible piece of therapy. And I'm not sure I, I'm, using, I'm overusing the word therapy, but it's, it has a therapeutic impact. It just, it just does. And I guess that's something that we like, I think we've both tried to bring to the students that we work with as well, is that like, yeah, drawing an elevation that you're interested in, unpacking it, exploring it, uh, is a useful thing to do and it moves things on. There we go. That's better. Thanks, David. That's really interesting. And I think the idea that, yeah, drawing for pleasure, but also drawing to kind of, for no obvious sort of immediate uh, instrumental reason in terms of being an architect is yeah. a really sort of I interesting point. Um, it might also be a good point of departure maybe to bring Hannah into the conversation in the sense of, um, you know, uh, from uh, Hannah, I'm going to let you do a little intro spiel as David did that would be incredibly useful but um, what I do know obviously is that you're also kind of on the client side to some degree you're also involved in the um, development industry and therefore looking at, at architectural drawings and representations um, in terms of going back to the, the early bit like their kind of ability to convince right so presumably you're looking at them um, you know can I see partly is you know can I see through this visualization to see something that might be the thing that I want um, and at the same time perhaps also kind of enjoying what you're being presented with um, and I know you probably also producing stuff yourself so perhaps you could say a bit about um, the opposite of not the opposite of drawing for pleasure but drawing for a very specific reason and drawings which are about trying to convince a client or a funding body or someone else that this is a thing that's worth doing Hi, guys. Um, I was hoping I wasn't after David, but thank you for the intro. Um, I'm Hannah. I'm Hannah Afolabi. I am a managing director and founder of Mood and Space. It's a development consultancy that uh, focuses on social value and community-focused development. So um, I assist clients, developers on the client side to deliver development projects, mostly residential mixed use. Uh, prior to this, or prior to setting up my own organization this year, I was development director at Balfour BT Investments, working on Eastwick and Sweetwater, which is a 2000 uh, uh, residential home scheme or mixed use residential home scheme on the Olympic Park, across two neighborhoods and community, with community facilities, new public realm, etc. So very big projects, and I've worked on similar large-scale regen projects prior to that. Um, should I, okay, uh, can you hear me now? <laughs> okay, great. Um, so in terms of the point of representation, and I kind of, so I, I, to caveat, I studied architecture as an undergrad. I could not be an architect, and I respect everyone who has become an architect, but it just wasn't for me. However, I do love the built environment, and I do love the idea of drawing for pleasure through the built environment and the representation of architecture as art and design. Um, however, as a client, as a developer, representation of architecture for me means having to understand what the building actually is going to look like and what it what its function would actually be and not just so i can do a development appraisal but so i can communicate that to my financers 
and or my internal team who aren't design people who need to understand what they're buying into. So I could present that to the Secure by Design guys. So I could present it at a community um, engagement session and get feedback from the public. So the, the and I think um, Charles, you said like the idea of it needing to be accurate or why should it be accurate? It's because it needs to communicate to people who are lay people. And that is fundamentally why representation in architecture, I believe, is helpful to have it as accurate to some extent as possible to get people to really buy into what the vision is because a lot of people just don't get it. I think the sketches, they're so beautiful and so evocative, but they don't represent the usage. And that's what people want to see. They want to understand how they can access or understand what is being delivered. Um, and so from, from my perspective, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's needed. The, on the flip side, in terms of the accuracy and why we do critique it, and it's true we do when it's not accurate enough, or the inaccuracies or the critiques around a CGI or a VR, I think it's because it's exclusive in the way it's rep represented and less so about it being wrong. You know, architecture in itself is subjective and design is subjective. So it's where it, it's forgotten certain things or people or areas, you know, like there's a dark corner that immediately as a woman you think I would never walk down there. Then that's a, criti a critique of the over-accuracy over of a design. But that is a good thing because we can comment on that and then change it. Or in CGI's, um, where we where we <clears throat> sorry, where we over aspirationalize, if that's even a word, the idea of what the area is going to be, and we only have thirty somethings uh, walking down the street, and there's no representation of mixed ethnicity, mixed ages, mixed abilities. That is not our communities, and so that's where we start to critique again, or where you have a play area that is only a football pitch or it's a barren land, or the over-verdancy over of a landscape, you know, and then actually in reality it doesn't look anything like it. And people, are, people feel like they're either not included or they've been lied to. So I think representation in architecture is criticised so much because sometimes we over-aspirationalise and also sometimes we just don't get it right in the design. In a way, there's sort of two different things that I think interpreting what you said, Hannah. Um, one is about a sort of idea of kind of uh, transparency or accuracy. Like you could look at this thing as actually telling you something that might, in some way, be kind of truthful about what's going on there. And then there's a question of like, who is it depicting? Like, who is in the representation, and who is sort of invited to be part of that projected world? We're all incredibly familiar with the sort of cliches of architectural representation, and everyone in, the, in, a, in a render is always incredibly happy. Children always look delighted. Parents are kind of like equally delighted to be taking their children somewhere. Um, everyone's engaging in spontaneous acts of sort of civic politeness with each other. Fountains always work, etc. So there's a kind of um, so that's sort of interesting as well, but I want to um, uh, I want to bring in um, Mary Duggan. <laughs> um, uh, you'll be pleased to learn, Mary. Um, and uh, partly, I think, because your drawings don't have any happy people in. 
but I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> in fact, they have quite a few. I mean, they have very few people in generally. So your um, Instagram feed. David mentioned, you know, his his Instagram feed, which um, in some ways is like an entirely sort of parallel project, perhaps to the practice one. Maybe occasionally. Um, uh, getting more hits, and I can put my hand up and say I have one of David's drawings in my house, so um, they're very nice. I can vouch for that, all available for reasonable prices. Um, uh, but they exist as a sort of parallel, perhaps, to practice, but moving into it. Your work, your Instagram feed, is that incredibly popular, uh, in, uh, has an amazing following, and also, I might say dare I say, it's quite abstract in the sense that it represents buildings in a way that's not a really obvious kind of representation of reality. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit, uh, you know, it has models, it has maquettes, it has um, kind of renders, but they're often very partial of a particular bit or a detail. Um, and I think it's really, really particular. And it obviously, to me you're trying to avoid certain kind of cliches of representation and certain kind of jolly images of sort of, uh, here's the whole thing. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you might do that and where those, where that form of representation comes from. What's the sort of tradition of it for you? Okay. Is this working? Oh, it is. Okay. Um, I, just to say a little bit about what I do as a practice, I suppose I'm obsessed with the value of materials um, I'm more. In, I'm a very slow-thinking architect, and I really believe that in architectural process, before you start to describe when people are entering your buildings, how they perform around your buildings, I think that you need to actually design them. I think understanding what the materials do are very much part of that. So, I mean, my design process is essentially making. Actually, it's more like baking. You know, I would make a model out of the, the kind of leftovers on my dinner plate if I could, because I think that's the way I kind of process architecture. Um, I don't have any issue with CGI, but I do have a lot of issue with the timing at which CGI are introduced into architectural processing, because I think what you don't get from a CGI that has a building and bricks and people and working fountains and balloons in the sky and singing birds is imagination and accessibility. So I really believe that you can talk to a client about an emerging idea slowly and present to them slowly how you think of what a, you think a building or a material might mean in that kind of succession of discussions before and you, you get a kind of slower buy-in than a instant kind of a an image that's just I think about a kind of commodification of architecture which is here you go here's the brick here's the happy people here's the thing that you can sell through whatever mechanisms you need just to to, to get the architecture to, to kind of suddenly make money um so I, and I'm I, I'm frustrated as a slow architect. You know, developers here. You know, I'm probably not the person that you want to employ because I am. You know, I do smile, but I it takes me some time to get to that point. Um, I think timing of CGIs is so important. I think CGIs really limit the kinds of materials that you can actually use and propose. Um, 
I think this question of who's in the images, as you've said, Charles, and, and Hannah has said, and how happy they are and what ethnicity they are and whether the places they exist in is dark is not for a CGI to answer. I think it's for other professionals to engage with that problem and talk that problem out through an intelligent dialogue that shouldn't rely on a, a picture to provide the answer. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think one of the things I suppose that that flags up, one of the things that's kind of obvious about what architects do, perhaps differently to maybe other consultants on one side, but also differently to maybe other people involved in producing culture, is that the need to sell. Like what architects do, spend a lot of the time is selling themselves, right? Whether it's like filling out very, very boring um, bid bid approaches or whether it's like trying to sell a kind of idea you're involved in a certain form of salesmanship and therefore I think it's interesting looking at architectural production as to who it's selling to <laughs> um, and I guess part of what architects do is sort of cultivate or create a kind of um, artistic um, sort of value for themselves you know I remember someone uh, I lived with someone briefly, who a friend who worked for Peter Eisenman, and he'd worked for him for like 10 months, and had not been paid anything at all. But what he had been given was a very small axonometric. And he was delighted with this, and I'd, I'd thought this was absolutely the most fantastic form of payment you could ever be given, um, and moved it from flat to flat, and hung up this Peter Eisenman um, uh, drawing. And I can also remember myself doing an architectural competition but I knew one of the judges quite well. And um, I, I, I didn't get shortlisted. And I said to them at some point, you know, why, why didn't I get shortlisted? Um, and she said, well, you did like a, a worm's eye axonometric. Like, nobody knows <laughs> what a worm's eye axonometric is depicting. It was a completely insane thing to have done. But I was quite interested in, like, the building sort of being positioned in relation to certain kind of other pieces of architecture that I was very interested in. So to me, it made some sort of sense. But as a piece of salesmanship, it was obviously, well, it was poor in that context. It might have some value in another context. So um, I guess that was a piece of architectural representation that didn't actually tell a lay audience very much. In fact, it kind of put off this particular lay audience quite a lot. Um, so I want to maybe bring in Jan from Squint, um, because I guess Squint Opera, and I'm going to ask Jan to explain a little bit more about them, but, you know, in a way, knowing their work a bit over the years, what it is about, I suppose, is a kind of the opposite, an incredibly sort of immersive experience in space. It's about perhaps trying to get as real as you can in forms of investigating new forms of representation, digital culture, that allows one to kind of inhabit places in a way that isn't, um, that, that, that somehow might kind of collapse the distance between reps, forms of representation or the lens of representation and actually inhabiting places and experience. Perhaps you could say a bit about that, Jan. Thank you, yeah. So I'm Jan Bunge. I'm a trained landscape architect who, after practicing for 10 years, ended up um, working at Squint Opera. I've been at Squint Opera for 11 years. And I think my journey was very much, um, you know, the, the, the first experience working as a landscape architect was very much the, you know, I, I understood that I spent a lot of time trying to convince people about, you know, things that 
might take you know, 30 years, 40 years to be realized. And, and the, the importance of narrative and the importance of actually you know, telling a good story that, that sticks so well that you know, these very complex urban projects are actually have any chance of you know, getting anywhere became such an important part in my, my daily life uh, that at some point I, I just switched sides and went completely into just communication. <laughs> um, and and um, Squint Opera was founded 20 years ago in Will Alsop's studio. And I think it was kind of his um, really exceptional, you know, fearlessness, fearlessness that is kind of the core DNA of, of, of Squint where we, we constantly uh, are searching for um, you know, ways in which we could evolve and, and change. And, and today, you know, that most of our work is really around uh, trying to create virtual environments which are you know, real-time 3D representations of space which are as accurate as, as humanly possible. And, 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 and I think the, the, what that means is that you can actually um, not only you know, see a design in a, in, a, in a section or a plan, but you can immerse yourself in a one-to-one -one scale and you can stand at a, at a corner and you can feel you know, the difference between this being a, a three-story development or a 30-story development. And, 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 and for me, one of the key moments you know, why we decided to go down this route so aggressively was um, with, with, a, with, with a bunch of clients that, you know, when, when we first allowed them to explore their project in, in real-time 3D, they were unbelievably happy in a way that, you know, because they felt empowered to make informed decisions that they, they could never do before. But because if you didn't study architecture, it's actually very difficult to imagine how a space will feel just by looking at a planet, even if you have a rendering and a film and you know, all these things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible for most people to actually really feel um, how, it would, how it would feel. And in the end, that's the most important thing, in my opinion, is you know, the, the uh, architecture is, in my, my view, very much experience design. So it's all about how we experience things in the end. The, 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 the success of a building gets decided the moment people are experiencing it. And we all are spatial sensors. We all have this capacity to instantly feel. You come into this space for the very first time and you immediately feel, oh, this is a great space, or this, is, this feels wrong, right? And, 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 and that capacity that we have you know, is, 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 I think, you know, under, uh, underutilized, or we, we don't access you know, that, that enough in the whole process. And, and, and so my hope is that, you know, we are at the beginning of a kind of, you know, second wave of digital transformation in the, in the architectural world, I believe, um, that will hopefully allow us to democratize the planning process in a, in a way that we have never been able before because we can actually allow people to virtually test an environment before we, we start pouring concrete. And, 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 and that allows us, you know, we, we, I've been to so many public uh, consultations. It's a, it's a joke, you know, you cannot ask people for feedback 
presenting them with you know drawings and plans and sections, you know, there's just no way you know they they can they can make have an informed decision. So, so 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 this new uh, way of representing architecture by you know uh, creating those one-to-one. Uh, models and they don't have to be photorealistic. You know, the, the beautiful thing is that you can work with the same, um, you know, tools that you do at the moment. Where at the beginning it's a it's a sketch model. It's a, it's it's just it's just blocks. You know, but even that gives you already a feeling. A lot of architects today are using this in daily practice by just you know jumping into those spaces and, and figuring out okay. Is that the right dimension of a window? A bit higher, a bit lower. How does this feel if I change? What's the when? When is the ceiling too low? When is it too high? You know, and use your own, trust your own feeling. Uh, you know, in, in in many ways. You know, I think that that is really the the hope for me that we can, you know, go into this more emotionally led design of some sort. Um, thank you. I, I think I want to um, maybe ask a follow-on question to that because, in a sense, I want to sort of. I don't know, maybe challenge it a little bit, because I think um, what's interesting to me about that, I suppose, is that there's a sense, but my question to you in a way is, does that make it more neutral? <laughs> that the more that it appears like some reality, it still contains values and codifications. Um, and I'm kind of, a very obvious way one might say about that, I went to an exhibition at the Barbican recently about the, um, the female architecture collective matrix, and they talked about designing a, a women's refuge on the Whitechapel Road a long time ago, mid-80s. But they, made, they talked about the process of making deliberately terrible models as a way to invite a kind of conversation that was not about, um, I guess, a sort of seamless or a realistic representation space, but it was about, I suppose, making people understand that you might not be an expert in the sense that you... That expertise might ex exclude... Um, exclude other audiences. So that's one kind of thing I wanted to ask about. The other thing, I suppose, is, is really about a kind of neutrality of representation. Um, so, for instance, in terms of architecture moving into, or architectural representation moving into worlds that are more akin to sort of film, because films aren't neutral either. They represent spaces realistically in a sense, but they might represent a space that's like horrifying or funny or kind of, you know, sort of unsettling. Um, so simply that it looks really convincing is not necessarily a thing that has no codification, has no sort of value. So my question, I suppose, is when you're, when you're perhaps trying to create quite advanced forms of, of, of sort of hyper-real simulation, it, is there a kind of tradition of like how that space is represented that you might be working with? Like, how does one judge the light level? Because is it simply like it's got to be as accurate as possible? Actually, no, of course in a banal way, that looks a bit better like that. <laughs> and we're all conscious of making things to make them look a bit better. But also, in sort of presenting, for instance, an interior, something that's kind of completely understood, that's not necessarily real. Because there might be spaces that we can't go into because we're not allowed to or because they're, uh, you know, they're, they have different kinds of values. So just sort of interested, maybe a little, tease that out a little bit more, that as we get more towards something that appears to be more real, does it still contain values that are being manipulated? And how does one deal with that? Maybe I want to go one step back, because at the beginning you, you were talking about the fact that um, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, A, who you talk to and when 
in the process, you know, you are talking to them. And, and you know, one of the, the core issues I think that we have is that the, we have kind of divided the whole architecture production process in, in two very distinctive parts. The first one is the design part where we do beautiful drawings and sketches and sell the vision and the dream and the happy people and the renderings and whatever. And then the contractor takes it over, it gets value engineered, you know, suddenly this is about getting the profit margin up and we don't use this material, we use that and make, let's make the windows a bit smaller and actually the supply chain, you know, we didn't realize that, you know, we can't have this brick, we need that brick. And, and a lot of the reason why I think we have this frustration with those renderings is that they're just done way too early, right? And you cannot have this, or the other way around, we did not, what I'm, what I'm arguing is that what we should do is either be aware of those constraints at the very beginning of the process, while I'm sketching, I know about the supply chain and I know, you know um, exactly the business model of my client who I am providing a service to, and I'm, I'm very much kind of in line with that and basically do, I'm a developer's architect, right? Uh, doing it with them in tandem, um, or you know, we we don't do that, and then and then, but then we can't show it, you know, at this early stage because it will never look the way it is drawn at this early stage, uh, you know, it, it, no, no matter what medium we're, we're. But anyway, so there's an issue there, I think, with, with that. But but um, in in terms of the this new medium, I think the we had the very beginning. Um, of you know experimentation and, and, and trying it out and the, to to start with I mean we often just use what's already there and and most of the stuff that you see today will maybe follow a similar logic like a, a CGI rendering would um, but I believe that you know this this will this will change um, as as this technology is evolving and then as we are getting more familiar with it and as it becomes more part of the, the production process as well. So, so, so I, I, I think there is a, a, a very near future <laughs> in which um, we actually, so bear with me one minute maybe, yeah? So the, the, the first technical you know, wave that we have seen in architecture, we basically forced architects to become technicians. You know, you have to know Revit and Rhino and you have to be a project manager on top of everything, right? And, 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 and so, arguably, creativity has suffered, suffered. There's other reasons why we see, you know, less creative uh, work being realized, which has to do with the fact that, you know, we, we're not really looking at the, the business model and we're not really understanding, you know, how this is getting produced in the end, maybe. Um, but fundamentally, you know, we, we forced architects to become technicians, in my opinion. And, and, and now, I think what we're gonna see is uh, a bunch of tools that will run in the background, you can think of as that kind of ambient computing, you know, that, that are like assistants that you can scribble on your iPad your, your design and make your sketch. And, and in the back, it calculates the supply chain the budget, the, the, the budget, the business model, the whatever it is, you know, that, that uh, will have an influence on your design. And, 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 and they, these, these features become like smart assistants 
that, that will guide your process of, of architectural production going forward. And so I think it's not only, you know, the, the way we represent which is changing, but it's everything is changing in, in, in this, in this uh, in industry, in my opinion. And this has to do with the fact that we are going to see much more economic pressure and environmental pressure, you know, that, that, that we have to deal with. Um, and the fact is that, you know, the, what we have seen in the late 80s and early 90s um, it was just the golden age, which is coming to an end. You know, it was it was easy to get government funding. It was easy easy to do those projects, and and you know the the, the Arabs and the Aecoms and whatever of this world. You know, it was it was an easy ride to to get to this point, but but now uh, I think we're entering a phase where we're going to see uh, extreme environmental and extreme economic um, pressures that that will force us to be more efficient. In, 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 in what we do. And, and, and so, you know, the, 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 um, the rise of, you know, digital tools that we are seeing since maybe a decade now uh, will only increase. And at the beginning, it was just the developer who was happy, you know, to have a tool to actually double check, um, you know, whatever he, he gets presented and, and, and run the numbers quickly. Um, but, but I think the, the urgency will force us, you know, to actually... Uh, completely rethink the way we we produce architecture in the next in the coming decades, um, and so sorry I didn't answer your question. The the uh, <laughs> the 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 short answer is yes. You know we we were, we always are going to be trapped, you know in 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 those preconceived uh, things. And but I I do feel that we have the obligation and also the opportunity to start experimenting. And, and playing and hopefully breaking out of some of those things, you know, that, that we are currently trapped in. Okay, th thank you. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose, you know, if looked at historically, new forms of representation are linked very much to kind of new forms of architecture and art production, aren't they? One thinks of, like, most obviously maybe that cubism and you, or surrealism or uh, collage, that they result in a different form um, of architecture, a different form of artistic production that comes out of that. And maybe that... Um, uh, link. I think some of the things you said link back maybe what Mary was saying in terms of like a kind of form of artistic production that is like holding back from a point at which you have to sort of declare your hand because the method you're using is somehow developing, uh, you know, a, a, an artistic approach. Um, I'm conscious that uh, Yemi wasn't able to join us today and I know that she sent some words so I'm going to... Um, pull Rob in at this point to, um, and, and, and maybe to talk again about an idea that she had of, I suppose, the, 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 the kind of idea of the sort of, I don't know, the sort of democracy or democratisation of representation. Rob, is that a good moment to jump in? I, I'm going to try, I'm sorry, uh, about my delivery, because normally we don't, we ask people not to um, prepare speeches for the Negroni talk. So everyone tonight has spoken off the cuff, which is amazing. But I'm now going to read something from someone else. So apologies for that. But, so Yemi wanted us to say, whether it be paintings, technical drawings, CGIs, or even the actual built product, we cannot underestimate the power of how things are represented. Looking back at my own personal development, this is Yemi, not me, um, <laughs> it took me a while to be able to put... to. Uh, paper pictorially the ideas I had in my head. It wasn't until my part two studies 
that I felt that the architectural representation of my designs started to catch up with the quality of writing, and that in due to no small part to David Knight uh, and my other tutors who opened my mind as to the wide range of built environment representation. I chose David's unit because they were investigating things I could relate to. The everyday, what some would call the mundane, housing, the hustle and bustle, the people, the littles of this world. The sites we were exploring for our final project were in Peckham, which in itself was different, given that it was neither cool nor sexy at that time. My final project was set in Rye Lane, right by the cinema and car park, which houses Frank's Cafe, as many might know it. It was a mixed-use building that had shops and a cafe on the ground, a large piano noble, community hall on the second floor, and resi above. One of my final images of the hall set up a party, but not just any party, a good old knees up at a Nigerian wedding party. As such, I put black people in the image, a lot of black people. There was no big statement behind the image. It was simply reflecting one possible use of the community, community hall based on the demographics of the people of Peckham. The building itself took cues from the cultural heritage of Nigeria people. Peckham has, after all, been referred to fondly as Little Lagos, and the project was a celebration of culture. Several years later, I was speaking to someone that had also studied in Kingston, who explained my work had really impacted them. The project had been used as a positive case study. The person I was in conversation with explained that they had never seen an architectural imagery and students' work that depicted a scene they could relate to so strongly. Their reaction was, I didn't know we could do that, i.e. strongly represent diverse people and culture, and that it would be accepted. Seeing my imagery gave them permission to authentically represent themselves in their student design work. It wasn't the architecture or design that stuck with this person, but the people that I depicted using the space. That conversation has stayed with me for many years. The importance of getting this right is not about ticking a box, but understanding that architectural images and representation tells a story about our values, about power structures, and about status, and about the spaces and places and communities we aspire to create. In the specific context of regeneration projects that I navigate, architectural imagery is even more sensitive as we work to build trust with communities. Having imagery that does not include erodes trust, discuss. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, obviously, um, that's exactly what we're going to do with that. So thanks to Yemi. Um, for a really interesting thing. It's unfortunate it came with yet more praise for David Knight, but I think we can overlook that. Um, I'm going to ask, I'm aware that like, this is meant to be like fun and everyone gets to say something, so I don't want to monopolise this according to like the um, prescribed list of speakers. So I maybe want to ask David and, and Mary, um, Hannah and, and Jan, to, if anyone wants to respond maybe to like Yemi's statement or anything else that's been said, um, and then maybe after that we could open things out a bit more widely to anyone who wants to kind of comment. So I don't know if any of you guys have something. Hannah, you've got some comments. I kind of wanted to do the whole clicking thing the whole time you're reading. So obviously I know Yemi. Also Yemi and I are friends and we are also Nigerian. And actually her story so resonates with me because when I was studying architecture as an undergrad, I remember having a conversation with one of my tutors at the time. It was my first year 
I grew up in Haggerston, Haggerston Estate before it was trendy, and um, and my estate's been knocked down. My primary school's been knocked down. My secondary school's been redeveloped. Like I am, I guess, have been gentrified out of my area. Um, I I no longer live in Haggerston, but. I lived in Haggerston when it was dangerous, when there were drugs, drug takers on the steps of my uh, council estate, when there were squatters living on the same, literally, level of housing as me. I went to University of Sheffield, and we had to do a housing development. And I remember speaking to a tutor, and the tutor was saying, you know, uh, so I, the tutor was talking about security in development in a housing block. And everyone was saying, oh, yeah, it's so much more important and secure to live above the ground floor. My experience was on the ground floor, you don't have squatters living there. And you don't have to walk past drug takers on the stairs. So for me, the most secure place was the ground floor because you can get away. You can put bars on your window if you needed to to secure your house. And I remember the person just being like, that makes no sense. And the idea is that as architects, we're so... Well, as architects, and I I wouldn't class myself as one, but it's an insular thought process, and the perspective of architecture is so insular in the way that it cultivates the same narrative over and over again as to how people live, when people live in so many different ways. And it's so amazing that even as a student, she was able to represent a culture that is not represented in architecture. If you look at Peckham and Peckham developments now, which development CGI has has any representation of like the scale of Nigerians or black people who live in Peckham like if you think about the Olympic Park which was CPO'd where communities and travelers were living there which which CGI has that represent represented like if we're talking about spaces that are occupied and perspectives of people how they live in spaces like architecture isn't about us, really and truly. It's not about the people in this room who are delivering and designing. We are doing this for people to occupy spaces. We are changing people's worlds. And if we're changing people's worlds, why would we not consider how they access the drawings or the spaces or the visuals that we are trying to design? And, you know, Jan, you said something so powerful. Democratizing architecture, democratizing the planning process, it is not democratized at the moment because people cannot understand what we're delivering. And we just need to start thinking in terms of the visual representation as a way to start engaging with lay people, with everyday people, and thinking about how we pull them into the process and delivering and designing for them instead of for us. That's. Okay, so whilst I agree with everything you said, I'm going to try and challenge something about that, which is like, does architectural representation have any other responsibilities or duties? Is it, is it solely about explaining how things are meant to be in the most transparent way? One might question its ability to do that, but one could certainly say that is, you know, a... a, a, a a necessary aspiration, but does it have anything else? When we do drawings as architects, when we make things, what else are we trying to do? Because one could say one is also trying to say something about the world which might be perhaps more general. One might be making a kind of connection to certain kinds of spatial organisation which are historic, I guess. One might say, okay, like, this is how historically humans have organised themselves. 
Um, and I want in this drawing to maybe comment on that or sort of push that forward in some way. So I guess my question is, I don't know, David, Mary, maybe Jan, is there something else in when architects are drawing that is valuable about trying to be, like maybe Mary, in your sense, maybe there's something valuable in difficulty in not quite knowing what you're looking at. Could that be a positive and important thing? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, having listening, listened to the different perspectives you know, I, I'll be honest, I feel slightly ridiculous sort of talking about my own agenda because I, you know, now hearing Hannah talk, I, can, I understand that seeing an image that deals with identity is, a, is probably a very important transition for Yemi. I understand that, um, or a kind of way into architecture that, that, that has greater social value. I listened to, 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 to Jan and I... I'm a bit drunk now, sorry. Um, and I think CGI is... I, I worry. I, I appreciate CGI has a place, but I really worry that architecture needs to go through... could potentially go through this funnel, which is, you know, suddenly you have a CGI person in your team and is permanent person in your team and they're kind of building a movie that talks about the kind of world and what the architecture is going to produce in the end and what all of those people engaging with it are going to do and how they're going to behave and how they're going to mix with each other. I think architects have still got a job to do and I can kind of see in my kind of narrow vision because I'm not I, I worry that architecture is just going to become Nothing very mediocre because actually all of these other issues start to take precedent and design is just going to evolve from whatever algorithms you can program into the software to make certain conditions real. I'm going to stop because I might ramble. Maybe just one very quick one. The, the, um, I think it really depends on who it is for, right? I mean, if you think about the world population and you know then maybe you know ninety percent of the architecture that needs to be built is better built in in that format but but I also completely believe that there's another dimension that is equally important which is to show something that is new and that that can not be generated by an algorithm and that cannot be extracted from a kind of collective intelligence you know that so I, I do actually believe that it, it is both and, you know, so, so it, it, it depends on, um, you know, in the context in, in which you're operating. But I, you know, I think the, the interesting um, task going forward will be to, on one hand, kind of optimize the, the process and democratize the process and, and, and make it more inclusive and, 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 and you know, that is unbelievably important in my opinion because it's you know part of the um, you know the, the the role that architects have in helping us saving the planet and, and but then at the same time there is also equally important the 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 more artistic you know mission to build things that have never been built before and and you will not get that from um, you know a, 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 a completely democratized uh, process, right? And 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 so where where would we be if um, you know 
we didn't have these crazy symbiotic relationships between you know often you know very wealthy people and and architects you know that that allowed things to happen that were completely unthinkable at the time and and you know whether it's a cathedral or whether it's uh, you know, uh, a, a brutalist uh, Corbusier building, you know, it doesn't matter, right? This is, this is often the marriage of, uh, you know, private capital and, and creativity. And, and then it opened up a whole new dimension that we just did not imagine before it existed. And, 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 and that is unbelievably important for us to evolve and to, but, but it has to be both and, 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 and yeah, it is important to, you know, figure out. Okay, brilliant. Um, there's some questions, hands going up and stuff like that, but just one final thing. Just want to bring David in before Tately goes to the floor, because I think, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, one might say that total democratization might actually bring something completely new, um, and, and one wouldn't rule out any possible way that one, I guess, creates new things. But I just want to ask David, because I think in, in your work, I don't waffle on too much, but I, I think there's a really interesting tension in your work between part of what you do is incredibly engaged and interested in kind of the idea of kind of community, who work is for, issues of planning and legislation, how actually things happen and who makes things happen and who has the power and who yeah. doesn't. And at the same time, teaching with you, looking at where there's like an incredible love of architecture sort of in itself, like making something sort of visually rich, fascinating, different, new, um, that refers to stuff is also important to you. Maybe yeah. picking up on those various strands, perhaps there's something more to add. Thank you. Uh, well, I'd agree with the point about like democratising, not necessarily limiting creativity, certainly, very emphatically so. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I don't think that an interest in that and, an, and a love of architecture as space, as form, as character, as style is mutually exclusive. It's really important. Um, I've also really liked Lemmy, Yemi for a long time. I wanted to admit that. Um, uh, I wanted to say very briefly that in terms of practice work, so less the kind of the Instagram account, which is basically a form of self-care, so like less relevant to being a professional and more about sort of survival and self-care, which is important for architects and not often talked about. Uh, what the practice is, the journey the practice has gone on in 10 years is quite an interesting one because we started um, and kind of thinking that we had to compete with peers and people kind of above us in the professional, more successful, older than us in the profession, who at that point seemed to represent uh, this idea that of the kind of the perfect CGI, the kind of the, the, the extraordinary image as the, as the, you know, as the kind of, not the, the, the end point, but as a key part of the end point, the end goal. Uh, we really quickly realized that we couldn't afford the graphics cards that would make those images and we couldn't afford to get someone else to do it. Uh, so we had to improvise. So that was our process of sort of joining the kind of Faller generation, if you like. And we, we work with Faller and, um, and really love their work. Um, where you you know you can basically use Photoshop and a kind of successive series of reasonably low-fi processes to build up a collage that speaks something about space and about character. Um, so we've been doing that for a long time, and those have done well in various contexts. And I think they have a they've been very powerful actually in communicating with clients, not necessarily a pinpoint accurate representation of space and how light's going to fall on the surface, but a, 
set of, set of ideas. What we've started to do very, very recently um, is to do like illustrator line drawings of things. Uh, so not quite my self-care, uh, you know, biro drawings, but stuff that actually, you know, you can, you can give a client something that's actually quite scaled, it's quite representational, it's based upon quite a detailed 3D model, maybe in some times or less so. Um, actually, they can scribble on it and send it back, right? And we've, we find ourselves migrating without quite understanding it in full from a kind of 500 megabyte Photoshop file that you can compress to a three megabyte Instagram post to a basically 10 megabyte illustrator file, which just iterates multiple times. And actually we can, we can afford to iterate it and move it on and go backwards and report a bit. And you know, it's a much more responsive thing. So in a way we talk about representation in social terms, not just in visual terms, that feels to me like an incredible tool of agency for the architects. It allows us to be creative and also responsive. You know, the, the, the budget for the final view can actually become the budget for a, you know, multiple repetitions quite easily and quickly and accessibly done of a, of a simpler drawing. Don't know whether that's going to be commercially successful at all. I'll, I'll tell you again next year. But like, that's the process that we've gone on as a practice. And I think it's a... I, I think it's I think it's helped us be more creative and looser. It's also helped us talk to clients and talk to the public. And okay. involve them. Thanks, David. So, um, two really interesting things there before I, everyone jumps in. One, I suppose, is the kind of the the power and the economics of actually you know producing image to start with. Who who has the the wherewithal to make incredibly um, sophisticated imagery? That's that's important. Um, and that um, uh, also quite interesting with Fala, I quite like the fact that they're having seduced the entire architectural world with their collages, collages they now make exclusively horrible drawings which I think is to be imported. Um, the other thing I wanted to say just, just as a way to chuck this out to people is what we haven't talked about of course is like the, the architecture as representation so there's a sense that we're trying to strive towards like representing a thing much more clearly that everyone can kind of understand what they're being given and shown and they can input into it. But the thing itself is a part of representation. What, what it actually is, is part of a sort of lang visual language of communication. Um, and we haven't really talked about that. I just want to sort of get it out there in case it sort of doesn't get a full outing. But anyway, now people of Umbra, um, you get to talk. Um, Emma Twine... Zach, you get to talk second, because this lady here has been trying to talk for a little while, but I'll come back to you. Well, we'll come back to you. Oh, I've been given the mic, so I'm here now. Um, so I really want to come back to Jan, and just before I talk about what I really want to, is to just uh, dis dismiss his uh, uh proposition about the significance of architectural representation of innovation. It wasn't the word you used, but, you know, I've been done. I saw the shard represented as something ethereal. I got delivered something that is seriously opaque and very clunky, and it has a significant impact on my life and many other people's lives. It is not a, there is a social relevance aspect that I'm just using that as a token for. So 
I'd really like to come back to Hannah's interest, which is communicating the activity. You, you focused on two points. The one was identity, and the other was activity. And to an extent, they merge, but they're also separate. So I'm not dismissing the identity point. I think it's not conceptually complicated. Um, you know, it's a choice. Who do you put in your images? Which culture are you informed by when you populate your evocation? But I think the thing that is really difficult is how you communicate activity without genericizing it, and how do you communicate what a diff what alternative formulations of a space will feel like, because that was something that you talked about. Now, my practice, I don't design anything. I only study people's experience of built spaces. And what I'm interested in uh, discovering is an informed way that um, designers can communicate the likely experiential impact of what they're designing, taking into account life cycle contingencies, which are immense, which we know from design review, you know, who is going to who is going to pay for the maintenance of this garden in a social housing proposal? Oh, gosh, well, we don't know, you know. And so it's going to either be completely dead crap or it's going to be something verdant, but it's very unlikely to be something verdant. But in any event, and now I'm going to say something that I, I apologize if it upsets people, but I think that a lot of architects do not know how their, the spaces that they deliver feel in practice post-delivery. You know, I, my life, about half of my life is post-occupancy evaluation, about half of it is interrogation of design proposals before they built. And which architects who've delivered a space that is used in the dark hours, and which who have designed a space to feel light and airy and sunlit and all of those good things, knows how their space feels like when it's dark. So I'll just use that as a proxy for a deficiency of knowledge about what the experiential potential and risk and likelihood of a space might be to feed into the representation. Thank you. Um, um, I'm, I'm going to ask anyone in the audience who might want to respond to that, or Emma, maybe you had a different question, um, in which case um, you can come in. I mean, I, just one thing I would say. Like, I remember when I was at college, there was like an enormous amount of um, attention in some quarters to sort of the idea that the architectural drawing historically hadn't described forms of occupation, like it excluded people, and that architectural photographs excluded people generally, and, and they only favoured a certain kind of climatic condition, I have a good one. Um, 
And there was quite a lot of interest in how one might start to describe how buildings could be occupied. Um, looking back on that work, I don't think it would have answered <laughs> uh, your critique, because it was concerned perhaps with a sort of idea of architectural space as a sort of political space, right? in the sense of like who occupies it. Um, what are the kind of laws of occupying that space? Um, I don't think it's... My, my personal feeling is I don't think it's entirely true that architects don't think about that. But I also think one might say, you know, look at the history of architecture and go, very few of those spaces were depicted in that way, and yet do we think that they're unsuccessful now? Like, the means of representation of, you know, I don't know, Hawksmoor Church was pretty, pretty minimal, series of sections and elevations and yet they're like incredible spaces so you might question what kind of incredible space that is but clearly some kind of understanding was there about the kind of atmospheric conditions of those spaces and how they related to the kind of uh uses and um uh uh kind of ceremonies that would happen them but there's no record of drawings that described those things so maybe that's a um with for me. Um, Emma. Hi. Um, so I work with David, and part of what I do in the practice is to be the bad guy who comes in and goes, okay, but what about program and what about fee? And I thought it was really interesting that there's kind of this discussion around CGIs, but actually a lot of what we struggle with and a lot of what the sort of line drawings have come out of is trying to squeeze enough fee to properly do the design process in the way that Mary was talking about and then have enough time to then do the visuals or do the kind of really immersive imagery is nigh on impossible in delivering public work. Um, there's just not, there's not the time, there's not the money. You're constantly sprinting. And I think this also really connects to post-occupancy evaluations. There's a clear benefit that we can see there, but trying to persuade a client to pay for it can be a real challenge. And there's a clear time at which those visuals become very useful. And I think, you know, CGIs can be really useful for working out those questions of, okay, who is going to occupy these spaces? Where are the problems? Who's going to maintain these things? Um, but how... I suppose my question is to the panel, um, how the hell do you persuade a client of the value of that and how do you get them to pay for it? Because I think, you know, I always really enjoy the kind of pragmatic elements of these talks. And I do think that that is a really important question of like the industry that we work in. How do we actually make space for that? Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, Mary. I was just going to comment. Um, I think therapy, and it sounds like, David, and your work is the way that you've worked out that actually your, your brain and the, your persuasive powers can only work at a certain pace, and drawing carefully is your medium to do that. I think your point is a really interesting one, and it's probably one that I think and probably don't answer through my practice, but... I would say no architect has predicted how a, one person or one community might feel. And I think your question for me has raised my biggest concern with CGI. It's which, you, you know, we can't time travel. We can't draw or make films with the answers because we don't know what's going to happen, but we can test it against all of the conditions that we do as architects, which is to understand a projection of a social environment or the light quality or the climate change and all of those things. It's a best go that we really need to tease out through this process that um, I think David and Emma are talking about. 
I just want to add to that maybe the, I do a lot of quits with uh, young students in, at IAC and AA and whatever, and, and I think you know, a lot of them are just adopting new technologies like gaming technologies that is not expensive, it's actually free. And uh, you can actually build those real-time environments that allow you to see how it looks like at night and you know, in all the different weathers you know, without spending uh, a fortune, you know, at it. And, and, and you know, we are, we are just at the beginning, but it's this young generation that is coming up now that is just cobbling together those solutions for themselves. And I think it's really exciting what's coming out of that. So, you know, hopefully there's a bit of... I guess one thing I wanted to ask was um, a lot of this discussion is centered on the fact that we think our buildings arrive perfectly formed. Um, and some of the CGIs, whilst they might be perfectly formed, um, buildings evolve, they develop, and they, they should um, change as they go through. But it seems like we, we've represented a static moment. The building should be that formed in that way. But it, there's, no, there's no life in any of this discussion, really. Um, um, just to add to Jan's, Jan's point and seeing young people playing with the technology that's available, software that, gaming software that uh, in, is available to any, anyone can use it for free until they turn a profit of a million pounds or more. Um, so most architects could use this for free if they wanted to, uh, it wanted to. And this software is out there being used by people with no architectural education all the time. And then they've made the software, things like twin motion, real time, any time of day, any time of year, hyper real, too real, too literal, but it's there to be able to test buildings in quite a useful way. And one of the things I found, this has all been really interesting because I felt like the use of the term representation has, there's a few sides to that. And there's also the use of the term architecture in this conversation. Um, there's the architecture, in the, in the art world, you have quite a clear difference between art within a gallery and art within a public space. Art that you've chosen to go and engage with an art that has come out and been put by whoever had the money or the agency to put it there has been put into your life and you are having to live with it. And there's a very different uh, responsibility to something that you're make, being asked to make because someone loves what you do and you get to make their home and that's amazing versus someone is having what you do put in front of you uh, put in front of them, and you're having, they're having to live around it, spend their lives in it, and you get to walk away and maybe just with the photographs of when it was finished. And it feels to me like some of these tools that Jan's talking about, these new forms of hyper-real, increasingly cheap, with the processing power, if you can afford the graphics cards, um, which are increasingly expensive, um, that form of representation, it, 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 we need to be doing both. It does, it, it's both. We can continue being as you know, speaking to each other and speaking to those who love what we do uh, in ways that move wider conversations forward, but we also need to be making these things more accessible. And the 20-somethings, the teenagers, are doing it right now, uh, and they're beginning to do it in universities. Um, I just wanted to make a comment as a 20-something. As a um, I think there's a, a strange... Um, association being drawn between CGI images as being the somehow more honest version of representation or somehow the 
the uh, more accessible and therefore kind of where we should be um, seeking to go version of events. I think that um, drawing and uh, far more abstract forms of representation actually have a capacity to be far more truthful in the sense there is much more room for deceit in a solid image, in the, in the CGI image with every single skirting and uh, plug rendered to perfection. Um, there is so much more room to be wrong. There is so much more room to be inaccurate by locking all of those down. And I think that it would be a disservice to the imagination of the people that we build for to assume that they cannot see uh, a sketch and see the truth in that or see the space um, within that. Um, that was the only comment. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, my name's Aisha Butera. Um, I'm a development manager. Anyway, I think, so working in regeneration, one of the great things, why this is a, a really relevant conversation, I find, is the GLA have put forward the whole ballot thing. So residents, rather than there being like five guys in the meeting and, and planning, you know, um, announcements on lampposts that no one reads and it's size 10 font, and then they go to your area and then they say, oh, t you know, these five people turned up at 2 p.m., but obviously that don't account for people at work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's definitely no room for buggies. Rather than having that kind of traditional way of um, connecting to the community through architectural drawings and everything else, the master plan, in a sense, there's a, there's a ballot. People in various different communities vote that live there um, in council homes if 150 homes or more get demolished. And um, you, you, you're literally, your master plan and the millions of pounds that's gone into the whole architectural designs is, is waiting for people to vote yes, essentially, um, within communities. So I think it's so relevant that we can speak to the communities um, and, you know, and represent them in the drawings because they are the voters. So what I find to be amazing about this, it's the people that are voting are the people that live in the communities now, the secure tenants, the temp people in temporary accommodation. And they are the people of most likely ethnic minorities living in poorer council homes. The people who are voting are not the new people that are going to come in and pay high prices and, 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 and come from different types of backgrounds um, because of the all inequality thing. Um, so it's really, it's powerful that the people who are voting um, now really have to be represented within drawings, within discussions, within um, project management and planning. And there's so many conversations um, as a development manager. My organization, I'm very lucky to work for an organization where there are a lot of um, ethnic representation. Um, but a lot of organizations don't have that. But it's important for there to be a mix of people employed in organizations um, within architectural or project management so we, we can relate and understand and, and, and have conversations and drawings. One example is um, a community center be built on top of a 17-story um, development. You know, that's interesting. That's something new. Um, you know, great stuff. However, the community 
feel like what about the young people coming in to go up to the youth centre, my corridors, my lifts, people outside, etc., etc. So just having those, I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't even drink alcohol, so I don't have an excuse <laughs> of being drunk right now. I am tired. I have two kids. That's my excuse. But I just think it's, it's so relevant, this whole conversation, because of the ballot that's coming in, that's coming from the GLA um, and the importance of that. Representation is, my last point, is representation is not just about colour as well. There's, there's gender, um, and there's a whole e-cry around gender and the protective characteristics. So there is so much to kind of represent within drawings. And I think there is a disconnect between architecture and um, what happens in reality, not because architects are in their own world and want to be, but because they don't see what they're delivering and the impact it's having. And I think site visits, not just for residents, is good, but actually site visits for architects to go on site five years later, two years later, and meet with the community that they've had an impact on is so important. Thanks. Hello. Hi. Um, can I just jump back to a point that Jan said and kind of disagree slightly about, um, uh, <laughs> about students and um, young people using technology to, um, I guess, visualise their creativity? And I suppose my question to you really is, is that part of the problem that we're creating now? We're, we're not allowing students to actually engage hand to pencil to paper and we're not teaching that we're not teaching that in edu architectural education um, when I studied architecture it was all about portfolio and you had to have a good portfolio you had to be able to understand perspective and be able to draw um, and now whenever when I'm teaching students they don't understand that and the first thing they do is they turn to SketchUp they turn to Revit now increasingly and that is it's downgrading the amount of creativity they are producing in their architectural projects. And essentially, that is moving through the whole process and ending up in visualization. So now I'm seeing a lot of my students producing work just in Enscape. And there's no, there's no, there's no vision there. There's no, there's no thinking with the mind, putting it down on paper, and then thinking about all the wider issues, because it's what's being spat straight out from the computer. I think it depends on the university and uh, the students, really. Um, uh, so I've been very lucky. I, I saw both. Um, you know, I don't want to name any names, but uh, I, I have taught uh, schools in schools where I had the same feeling. I shared the same feeling that you have, and it was highly frustrating. And and I had the other experience as well, where it was uh, the, the absolute opposite, where they blew me away. You know, with their creativity using tools in maybe unorthodox new ways you know, that I did not see, I haven't seen before. And, and it, it is an interesting question because when I, when I studied landscape architecture, we had the same discussion with our professors, right? It was the time when computers were new and uh, you know, people were saying you cannot, you cannot master plan if you can't see the paper in front of you and you, you have to be able to draw because you have to be able to see what's here. You can't do it on a screen. You know, you can't do it on a computer, right? And, and, and so it, I think it really very much depends. I think a lot of students are completely lost and they just shouldn't study architecture, you know, and because architecture has this weird hype, you know, where, where people think it's cool or I don't know what they think. You know, you don't make any money, it's not very cool. It's like, 
but but uh, but there is this hype. I mean, I was literally in 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 you know teaching in in, in courses where half of the students couldn't answer why they want to become an architect. You know, they were just there. And, and, and that's frustrating, you know, and then it's not very creative with all of that. Oh, no. but, yeah, but it depends on the, it depends on the, on the, on the student, I think, or on the... On Sorry, the Jan, I'm just butted in because I can see Anna's got a mic and she's a student. She might want to reply. Hi, yeah. Actually, um, I was, I had another uh, comment before you started talking about students and um, part of me wants to start defending students now uh, because actually in our practice we, we work a lot with hand drawing and I understand what you mean because um, thinking through drawing is a totally different thing than thinking from through a screen. But actually I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier when you were saying that it's, and a lot of people today talked about accessibility and I think that we kind of under, underestimate the ability of people to, because you were saying, okay, they won't, they won't be able to understand what kind of space it's going to be and um, how it's going to be inhabited. But actually, I think people are more able to see that. And I once talked to practice, who, the people, the architects there, they don't work with CGI's, they only work with um, SketchUp models and very simple, texturing very, they don't put, there are no many, not many people in those images. And then um, the architect was saying, I don't believe that there is a client who won't get what you meant or what the space is without, you know, uh, spots of light on the windows or uh, extremely realistic trees. And this is, I think we shouldn't be forgetting about the space itself. And then in the end of the day, we're doing architecture. And then the question of identity, atmosphere, and things that's going to happen inside, it's something separate. Because um, what actually matters is the space itself. And people will be able, I think, um, we can communicate um, the qualities of space to them with very simple tools. And maybe, uh, yeah, with the, without being extra realistic, without bringing them even physically to that space with the tools that you were describing. Um, yeah, um, I, yeah I, I think it really depends, right? I mean, it depends on the scale and it depends on who you are talking to. But, but uh, I mean, one, one thing while you were talking, you know, that we didn't talk about, which I actually love, is, uh, you know, studios like Neuterlings Riedecken, they had this rule where it was, uh, everything was built in a one to 50 scale, physical models only. Photoshop is not allowed, you're not, you're, not, you're not drawing anything, basically. You're just building these, uh, you know, 1 to 50 scale models. And, and if you're building an, an opera house, then you, and the client wants to see three options, then you, you build, uh, you know, 5,000 chairs three times and, 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 and put people and put the, and, and, and this kind of representation is extremely powerful, you know, because these, these models really allow you to immerse yourself because you can go, you know, close and inhabit them. And, and, and if they're done the way they do it, I mean, it's really unbelievably uh, uh, beautiful, you know, and, and, and powerful. And, and then you just take beautiful pictures and, you know, Photoshop, great, you know. So, but, but I think to your point, I think it is, it's really difficult um, for me to, you know, it, it's so unbelievably complex you know, and and it, it so very much depends on on the context that you know your audience, your your scale, where you are in the process, what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to communicate uh, in the project, and it's almost like I feel like we have to 
consciously make a decision where we, we, we pick the right weapon for the fight. And, 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 and sometimes it's, the, it's a very simple hand sketch that, that, that does the trick and that, that should be the medium of communication. And, and, uh, and, and sometimes it's the fully immersive you know, VR experience. That, but it really depends for me all on you know, what, what, what it is you're trying to achieve and who you're talking to. Can I just just come in on that before we go to Hannah? I just want to, because just for the sake of it, I want to disagree, but also because I generally want to disagree in some ways. One is like the history of, what, the thing I tried to say at the beginning um, is that the history of architectural representation is not about trying to show exactly what spaces are. <laughs> so my question is, is that what we're striving to do, to show, to move towards an ever-increasing possibility of transparency. I don't necessarily believe that's true, but I'm interested in whether that's the aim. And of course, on one level, absolutely that's what we're trying to do. But also, you, you described the trick, and I'm really interested, because what is the trick? And what is the point of the trick? Like, if you're trying to get someone to kind of understand something or buy into something, what is the thing you're trying to get them to buy in? So there's a sense that you're using representation to be totally clear, this isn't a criticism at all. I'm actually genuinely really interested in this. But actually, you're, you're trying to do something else. That representation there is a sort of ability to try to describe something that isn't there and will never be there um, until you build the thing. The other thing, I'll say, uh, just very quickly, is methods of representation. It always seems slightly reductive to me to think that different methods of re uh, representation are better than others. Like... The hand sketch is great, but also should we fetishize that over something else? And of course, all these things are partial. They all allow us to do something, but they also stop us from doing other things. So that's my bet. I want to hand over to Hannah. Um, no, I think that's a really great segue, because I think hearing the conversation, it sounds like there's a confusion between representation, as in external representation to people who aren't architects, who aren't creative. I think there was a comment there about people, some people or um, underestimating people's creativity. I have spoken to my finance director. I've spoken to HR people. People do not understand drawings. They would see a plan and do not know what it represents. And we have to be really clear that the end, when, when we're talking about a lay person, they do not get drawings. So I just want to be really, really clear on that. This idea of creativity is actually a fallacy. Not everyone is creative. Everyone's mind works differently. just want to really say that. But to work backwards, the, the, the external representation, a third-party representation, is very different to the art of design. Architects are designers, full stop. That should be a pencil drawing. That should be maquettes. That should be 3D models. That should be a process of iteration, of creativity. That is what it's supposed to be. But when you've gotten to a point where you are now representing your drawings, your ideas, your visions, to people who do not understand your drawings and what you've scribbled down on your pieces of paper, you have to represent it in a way they understand. Or your art, your drawings, your creativity, for sure, because no one can take it in. The difference between, say, a furniture designer who can scribble something down and then make a prototype like that, and for people to get it, and architecture that is, you know, it takes could take 10 years to be built, is that 
you don't, we don't have this stopgap where people can buy into this idea very quickly. And so if 3D design does that for us after we've scribbled down, after we've iterated, after we've done all the other things, and we're now trying to pre present not to just a client or a finance director or the planning officers, but to the people who are going to be living in those spaces who are also not trained architects or trained creative, creatively, then it should be as realistic as possible. Yes, it will be altered. Yes, it's a moment in time. And I think there was a point, someone said something about we're not tra time traveling, but we are. That is actually fundamentally what architects do. They assume a design today. We get planning permission today for something that's going to be built in 10, 15 years time. How is that not a future projection of what someone's going to be living in. We are time traveling through the art of design. And so we have to consider that the spaces we're operating and the idea of post-occupancy is so important, is to iterate to make sure in 10 years time when it's done, it's improved beyond what was there 10 years ago or when we first started drawing and then go back and find out if it worked so we can produce again for the next 10 years. And that's what we're supposed to be doing and we're not doing it well. Another question was asked about how do you get your client to buy into post-occupancy? What are you do what, what questions are you trying to ask? Does it actually does it add value to your to your client? Um, if it's about actually benefiting you as a practice, then I would argue that you should pay for it. But if it's actually going to also answer questions for your client, then and by the way, also answer questions for yourself, I'm pretty sure there's a business case for why they should pay for it, and they're not massively expensive. And also, if it's social clients, they also see a benefit in doing it. And if you think about housing associations, local authorities, they, they actually also want to understand how the end users are operating. So I think there's definitely a business case for that. I think I covered all the points. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. I, um, I just wanted to ask you a question, Hannah, about the conversation that we had before we sat down to dinner. We were talking about presenting to potential funders and how um, potential financial gain is the most important thing in that presentation and that communication. And um, quite often there's a lot of other values like social value, cultural value, ecological value, lots of other things that architecture and uh, design can bring that are getting lost in those conversations. And is that something that is the job of visual architectural representation to do? Or are we actually already letting the side down by not doing a better job of bringing those values in uh, to encourage buy-in, particularly from uh, public clients, to say, well, um, the land value might not be maximized here, but you may have to spend less on keeping your communities healthy because the rest of the scheme performs so well. Um, yeah, I guess it's a good add-on to the conversation we had. I think the, 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 the difficulty is when you're speaking to the finance, it depends on who it is. If it's a, if it's a socially conscious finance, or bond or investor, they want to know about the social elements. They want to know how we're going to like how you're targeting that, the environmental targets, etc. If it's someone who is just about money, um, which I don't believe anyone should just be about money, but if it's just someone who's about money, 
they don't necessarily care. They want to understand the numbers. They want to understand how the building looks and how it fits in, if you're going to get planning, what the risks are. And, and so the operation of representation there or the, the idea of representation there is a very different language that you're speaking to a financer that you would to a, someone in the public or in, as a planning officer or in a design review meeting. And so I think in that setting, it's still important to represent what is being developed because they are very, like, I think numbers people that I've, I've worked with in the past are very practical. They see something and they think, okay, that's what they're getting and that's it. And they typically don't have an opinion beyond the value of what it looks like. And I think that's where the, for a financer, it's really important just to put something in front of them because they would not get your plans or your, your snazzy drawings. They want to understand practically what am I getting. Cool. Thank you. Um, first, I just want to say it's been a fantastically interesting conversation this evening. Um, thanks to everybody who's spoken. Um, I just wanted to throw a couple of other things in. Firstly, uh, the mediums and tools of representation and how they they shape the end products like uh and i think this might this might uh link somewhat to uh, i think some of mary's misgivings about moving into the digital production is is like you know we've all seen buildings that you can tell immediately it's been designed in sketchup and it's like there's been nothing that's stop this person from just extruding and punching holes and and there are some like so i suppose at different stages of a architectural process there are different mean mediums of representation which provide certain limitations that then force decision making in a different way and and i suppose the 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 risk of sort of jumping in to uh to a kind of limitless digital process too early on is that you don't have any anything to stop you and you don't and and in that you kind of find yourself limited like rather than sort of working with within the limitations of the of the medium that you're working in and then the the other thing i wanted to add was i'd probably to some of i think your conversation was is you know, representation as well is like partly what you choose to represent is then what you you're then considering within the design process. As if you're if you're showing a particular social group in early on and they're represented, or you're showing trees on your site, then you'll be taking them into account as you go through your design process. If if then if they're absent from the representation, they're not they're not going to be considered. And so, you know, representation is as much about choice as well and what you're, what you're kind of adding to that process. Thank you. Um, I think the Homburg management entirely in charge on how long this goes on, but I know Laura's got a question and John, you had a question, so maybe that's... And then Rob's going, that's it, we're shutting. <laughs> Laura. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so one of my thoughts was that this whole, a lot of this discussion has focused on kind of architectural representation as a means of representing a kind of final product as a finished building. But in my own work, a lot of my kind of architectural representation is a means of research and a means of looking at kind of buildings that have been completed and kind of investigating them or critically understanding them through, say, casting, model making, uh, drawing, sketching, rubbings, all kinds of things. And I was just thinking, you know, what I, I feel like, you know, Charles, David, Mary all use architectural representation as a means of research and a means of understanding ideas before they go, say, into production or even after as a, as a way of kind of thinking about things. I just wanted to kind of ask thoughts on, on that as well, rather than just like, oh, we'll finish buildings all the time. <laughs> no, I think it's a really good point. And maybe Mary's um, comments touched very much on that in the beginning. I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel, John, do you want to come in? Have you, is your question still relevant? <laughs> Depressing as always, probably. Um, I don't, there's been a lot of talk of like drawing and democracy and, and, and so on this evening, and but there hasn't been much talk of drawing and ideology. And in certain traditions of understanding drawing and architecture, drawing is like just the prime site of ideology, as in telling false stories about hiding the reality of what's actually happening in building production and spatial production. And it seems to me that a lot of this discussion around democracy and drawing right now is still actually just playing that kind of ideological role. So, yes, we can ask who is being represented in drawings, and, and surely there are more or less democratic ways of doing that. Certainly, representing the communities more accurately would still be more democratic, but actually democratic drawing would be the communities doing the drawings, of course, you know. Um, and similarly, there's been a lot of discussion of how oh, it would be democratic if somehow the experience, the phenomenological experience of space was more accurately captured in drawings. But again, I mean, that can be done to some extent. But, you know, if you're in an alleyway and you're a 14-year-old, you know, black boy, then you've got a very different experience of that alleyway to if you're a white policeman or if you're a female or whatever. And that's simply, you know, so there's some kind of illusory demands being placed upon drawings and the potential experience of them. And, and those illusory demands are precisely the way in which drawings are ideological. They hide the reality of production. And I think someone earlier was talking about, well, actually, you know, drawing, it actually emerges, as does architecture, in a very particular economic model, as does design. And it's, you know, Marxists talk about how capitalism on the one hand, constantly fragments skill sets and also constantly separates uh, manual and like intellectual and manual labor. And, and so basically drawing is one of the primary ways in which building sets of divisions of labor in building have been separated out. And, and it can never get over that, you know, that actual trauma of being part of that separation. You know, there is no... The bitter truth, I think, is that yeah, there is no progressive route forward through the kinds of drawings we have simply because they're part of a production of space that's just fundamentally unequal and fundamentally problematic. Um, so actually, I mean, the whole concept of drawing, I think, needs to be... We need to recognise, on the one hand, yes, certain demands about you know, making them more democratic, but also just the recognition 
that on the model of spatial production we've got at the moment, there is no possibility of real democracy. You know, and, and drawings can't possibly do that. You know, the experience of drawings is drawings. You know, it's not... Um, and, and actually, you know, and, and there's, once you pursue that truth, there's beauty within that, there's therapy within that. But we should also recognise the historical role of drawings within the ways in which capitalism operates and not make unrealistic demands upon them and actually imagine very different ways of producing space, I think. I think this is, um, this is precisely the kind of pessimistic note we wanted to end on. Um, uh, which is not to say that it's not entirely true. <laughs> and, of course, we're, like, representing things, and you can try and represent things neutrally, and maybe, and I would contest you can't, but it's also the thing that's being represented. So we might find increasingly democratic ways of representing spaces that are increasingly undemocratic in themselves. Um, and I suppose one might like look at the kind of history of post-war housing and go, there were very few democratic ways of representing that, but there were very democratic spaces being made. Now we perhaps think a lot about how to represent spaces which are less democratically formed. Um, but uh, I think despite the kind of... Um, you know, sort of black humour of that. That's like an incredibly important spot maybe to end the formal bit of this, which is um, drawing is not a question simply of saying, oh, this is a good or bad representation of reality or this is a truthful or untruthful representation of reality, that every single representation contains within it, as John says, I think very correctly, a kind of ideological uh, opinion or ideologically, ideological position in the world, not least the one that means that you can do the drawing or that you can view the drawing or that you can commission the drawing um, or you can not. Um, so maybe that's a good, um, a good provocative, uh, feisty moment to um, throw it completely out to the floor and everyone can carry on uh, drinking, talking, arguing. And I would just say, like to say, um, yeah... That was a very contentious point. Um, I'd just like to say um, thank you to, to David, to Hannah, to Mary, to Jan um, for talking. Uh, thanks for Yemi for her um, uh, contribution, despite the fact that she couldn't come. I'd like to say thanks to Hugh, Paolo and Steve for inviting us and Rob organising it. And um, the pastor was very nice. Thank you very much. Um, and, um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you very much. more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.